Hi guys, and welcome back to What Happened, True Crime Chronicles. This is episode 19, and we're still talking about the trials of Robert Durst. So this is part two of the trials of Robert Durst. Okay, in the last part, we were talking about kind of everything. So let's pick up pretty much where we left off. In the last episode, we discussed Robert or Bob Durst's early life, the broad charges against him, the relationship he had with his first wife, Kathy, and the circumstances leading up to her disappearance and the direct aftermath of that. After watching the documentary, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the name Robert Durst kept popping up in my my newsfeed. Within a few months of watching it, Robert, of me watching it, not necessarily of it being released, but of me watching it, Robert was first arrested for the murder of Susan Berman, his best friend, and then he was tried for her murder. After watching the jinx and seeing this play out in real time, knowing the information that was in that was really interesting, actually. So while this was going on, Bob wound up contracting COVID because all of this happened during the COVID pandemic and various other infections he picked up during this trial and his health was quickly declining. Um, At this age, he also had, uh, I believe there was some kind of esophageal cancer, like cancer of the esophagus uh, that he had had removed and he was only given a few years left to live by his doctors. But not before he was then indicted finally for the first-degree murder of his decades-missing wife, Kathy. When it popped up in my newsfeed that Robert had contracted COVID-19, I figured he would never make it to face any kind of justice for Kathy. He actually tested positive for it just literally two days after being convicted for the murder of Susan Berman. Unfortunately, he never made it to Kathy's trial, and Kathy's family, having waited so long for justice, were ultimately robbed of it. Although it wasn't the coronavirus that took him out, it was cardiac arrest, probably brought on or aggravated by his many other health complications in the few years preceding that. As of the recording of this podcast, Kathy's body has still not been found. So now we're up to the part of Robert's life where he met and befriended Susan Berman. This is the next part of this case. So let's talk for a minute about Susan Berman. She was a fascinating character from everything I've seen and read. Susan Berman was born in 1945 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she was raised in Las Vegas to parents David Berman and Gladys Evans. As a child, Susan was surrounded by wealth and privilege, although as a child she was not aware of how her family had acquired that prestige and wealth. Only later as an adult would she discover that she had grown up as the daughter of an infamous high-ranking member of the mob. She was treated almost like royalty and even had Liberace sing at one of her birthday parties when she was a young girl. Her father was referred to as Davy the Jew in mafia circles and he ran with Bugsy Siegel and owned and ran a number of Las Vegas businesses including the Flamingo Hotel. Yes, the famous Flamingo Hotel. That's how important and connected Susan Berman's father was. So although Susan's father doted on her and gave her everything her heart desired, 
He died of a heart attack during a surgical procedure when she was only 12 years old. It's unclear how much her mother knew about the source of the family income, but her mother must have been very troubled as well as she committed suicide only a year later after Susan's father's death, now leaving Susan without any parents and orphaned at only 13 years old. I guess that was something that she and Robert had in common and no doubt bonded over, the loss of both of their mothers to suicide when they were children. Susan managed to make her way in life and eventually attended UCLA, where she, attended, where she attained a Bachelor of Arts degree, and this is also where she met Robert Durst, unfortunately for her. And then she later went on to become a journalist and a writer. Susan states that she didn't know anything about her father's mob connection until she was older, when a friend told her about a book she had seen in a bookstore that appeared to be about Susan's father. Susan went out and bought the book. After reading it, she had a different realization of her father. Although she wasn't ashamed or scared, she seemed to revel in this infamy and power. She ultimately wrote a book about it all entitled Easy Street. Apparently, she even had her father's mugshot photo blown up and framed on a wall in her house. So she embraced this newfound knowledge of her family. When she finally found out about her lineage, she always questioned the causes of death for both her mother and father, who both died young, and always wondered if they weren't maybe connected to their mob, their mob connections or maybe silenced by somebody else for something they knew or saw or, or whatever, but something related to the mafia possibly. As she grew older, Susan developed some really strange ideas and phobias. She likely inherited some family mental illness, along with her own traumas, of course, from her own life. One of these things was she was allegedly afraid of heights, but to a really drastic degree, deathly so, and wouldn't go above the third floor in most buildings. She wouldn't live above the third floor. She didn't even like visiting her office where she worked because it was above the third floor and wouldn't do it unless she absolutely had to, according to witnesses. She, had, she also had an abnormal fear of being killed or being robbed or broken into. She had all of the windows in her apartment nailed shut with extra locks placed on all of her doors and other security measures in place. This becomes an, apart, an important part of the case later on as there were no signs of an intruder or a break-in at her apartment where she was found dead. She also had three dogs at the time of her death, fox terriers named Lulu, Romeo and Golda. She loved her dogs and she doted on them with, with like they were like her children to, to her from all witness accounts. Susan was Robert's best friend and with her background, she was described as very loyal by friends and family and willing to do just about anything for the people she cared about, even things not strictly legal. On December 23rd in the year 2000, Susan was killed, execution style, with a gunshot to the back of her head, with the weapon held literally just a few inches away, according to the medical examiner, at age 55. Her body was found when neighbors saw her dogs running around free in the neighborhood and reported that her door was wide open. When police arrive, they find Susan's door open, and inside they find Susan face down in a pool of blood shot in the back of the head no signs of a struggle or a break-in 
or a robbery or anything that gave any clues at all. Police initially thought it could be a mafia hit, considering her connections, and she had also been writing about the mafia, and the way she was executed looked like it could possibly be a professional hit. The police believed, however, from the evidence that they were finding, that whoever killed her was let into her apartment by Susan, as, again, there were no signs of any forced entry into the house, she never left anything unlocked, so the police believe that she let somebody into her apartment, then she turned around to walk away from them as they came in, and that person took out a gun and shot her point-blank in the back of the head as she walked away. She fell forward, and that's how she was found, and then the killer left. However, however it did, hap- however it did happen, she let the person in who, who killed her. She let her killer in. And then she felt comfortable enough to turn her back on them and walk away. So who would Susan, who had all these phobias and fears, feel comfortable enough to just let in her apartment and turn away from that might have had a motive to kill her? Well, we don't know all the ins and outs of Susan's life, but we know one person that did. Her best friend did. And she would assumedly have no problem letting Robert into her apartment. So now we are up to the part of Susan's murder case that I like to call the cadaver note. A note is sent to the police shortly after Susan's murder in Beverly Hills with the words, Beverly Hills Police, written on the outside of the envelope. With the following statement written on a piece of paper on a note inside the envelope that said 1527 Benedict Canyon, this was Susan's address, by the way, with the word cadaver written directly underneath it. All the words were printed out in large capital block type letters. The entire thing was written in green ink in capital letters and the word Beverly on the envelope was misspelled. It had an extra E between the L and the Y in Beverly. Begging the question, of course, that why would a mob hit or anyone else want the police to find Susan's body? However, if it was someone she knew and maybe someone who cared for her, that person might want her to be found, right? Things were heating up for Robert. This brings us to Janine Pierrot. Janine Pierrot, who went on to become Judge Janine Pierrot, who now works on Fox News. But if we can forget about that for a moment to go back into time when Janine Pierrot was a prosecutor trying to make a name for herself, she became intent upon prosecuting Robert Durst for the long, cold case of Kathy's disappearance. And she had it reopened. Now with new eyes on it, the case is re-examined and people are re-interviewed. Do you remember Eddie Lopez from part one of our podcast in this series? Eddie Lopez, the elevator operator, remember, who says that he brought Kathy Durst upstairs to her Manhattan apartment the night she went missing, the night that Robert put her on a train from South Salem to New York. Everything hinged on him seeing her in the elevator, right, that night. So he's questioned again in these years and years later. When he's questioned again in the years now that have passed, he now states that he cannot say for sure that it was indeed Kathy that he brought up that night and never was totally sure. 
contrary to his statements to police at that time. When some of his former co-workers are also interviewed, they state that Eddie has a reputation for being someone who tells a lot of tall tales. Lying is not something new to Eddie, and they say that he would maybe just make up a story like that just to get attention, or just to give police something he thought they wanted. So now, the only piece of evidence that police had that Kathy Durst ever went to New York City that day no longer exists. It's just Bob's word, which isn't worth much. And the phone call, of course, the phone call, the curious phone call the day after she goes missing to the dean of her med school calling her in sick, which was a female, but we do not know for sure was Kathy. And as a matter of fact, we're pretty sure it was not. Anyway, we're gonna move away from that for one second. So the police are starting to think at this point, what if she never made it to the city? What if she never left South Salem? That's a new way of looking at things, right? With all of this heat on Robert about Susan Berman and now Kathy, this prompted Bob to up and move somewhere low profile, somewhere like Galveston, Texas. Well, 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 and just guess what happens when Bob goes to Galveston. If you guessed another murder, you'd be right. And this time, it's Bob's next-door neighbor, Morris Black, who winds up dead. First of all, Bob heads to Texas and rents out a tiny, dilapidated half of a duplex. He buys a wig and women's clothes at the local Walmart, and he decides he's going to start off life in Galveston by passing himself off as a deaf-mute woman. He pays his rent up front for a year in advance so as not to have any difficulty with the landlord and he wouldn't have to deal directly with them any more than is necessary, right? He's cutting down on any suspicion or anybody possibly finding out who he is. He knows he's on the run. He knows there are arrest warrants out for him. In this house, Robert meets Morris Black. Morris Black was a 71-year-old, non-social, elderly man who lived by himself. By most accounts, he was a crabby old man who never had many friends or family. It probably made it a bit easier for Robert to have done what he did, actually. We don't know for sure how close he and Robert became, but according to Robert's testimony at trial, him and Morris became great friends, and he eventually confided in Morris as to who he really was. Not a deaf-mute woman named Dorothy Siner, but a multi-millionaire wanted for questioning and by the police for answers in two possible homicides. Police think maybe Morris might have find, found out who Robert was. They think Morris might have, either by accident or by research, found out who he was and maybe attempted to use that against him, perhaps blackmail. All we know for sure is that Morris was killed in September of 2001, then dismembered, placed into garbage bags, and dumped into the Galveston Bay. Fast forward one month, or thereabouts, a young 13-year-old boy is out fishing in the bay in early October 2001, when he comes across some black garbage bags that are floating. Upon further examination, 
They contain what look like body parts. The police are called. When the police arrive on the scene and begin to investigate, they find some receipts in the garbage in these garbage bags. Like along with the body parts, there was a few other little items. One item was a receipt and some little bits of paper. Um, the receipts found in the garbage bags with the body parts have the name Robert Durst on them, and his residence is in the same duplex as Morris Black. When they locate that duplex and they find the landlord for the house, he tells them that a deaf-mute lady lives there. Not a man, not a Robert Durst. But a man does live in the other unit, a man named Morris Black. The puzzle is starting to come together for detectives. Police enter both units and discover a whole lot of evidence inside Robert's. First of all, there are saw and knife cuts in the linoleum on the floor. When the police lift up the canvas, they find a whole pile of blood that has seeped through the floor and into the wood, the wooden floor underneath the linoleum. It's everywhere. Robert has not really gone through a lot of trouble to hide his crime. The blood turned out to be a genetic match to Morris Black, which incidentally was the body found in the bay. So now they are looking for a man by the name of Robert Durst. This was the name on the eyeglass receipt found with the body parts in the garbage bags. That's clearly not the dead man. So they contact the eyeglass clinic on the receipt and they ask them to please contact the police if this person ever shows up to pick up their eyeglasses. The detectives don't really expect a lot. However, as luck would have it, they do. The police are called um, by the clinic when Robert shows up for his glasses and they go right away. They wind up finding Robert Durst driving away from the clinic and they pull him over close to the eyeglass clinic. When they pull him over and they search his vehicle, among other things, they find a bow saw in his trunk. A bow saw is sometimes used to cut through bones. They arrest Robert and bring him to jail. The judge imposes a large bail amount. Robert, surprisingly, to the, to the detectives on the case, contacts a woman from the jail who he identifies as his wife and she wires him the $250,000 for bail. I told you this gets better and better, this case. Just wait. He posts bail and walks away. So, Robert's now gone. Gone in the wind, right? First of all, yes, Robert is married again. Unbeknownst to just about anybody, to a woman named Deborah Sheraton. Robert apparently met Deborah in 1988. This is just a few years after the disappearance of Kathy, and he married her in the year 2000, early December, literally weeks before Susan Berman was murdered. So there's a whole lot of um, there's a whole lot of coincidences going going on here, right? That's a whole other twist. So, after he posts bail, he disappears. He fails to appear for a scheduled hearing about the murder. So an arrest warrant is issued for him. At this point, he is on the lam, literally. But he could be anywhere with his money and resources. Then the police get lucky. A man is caught on camera at a local store in Pennsylvania, stealing a sandwich. 
he is caught on the security footage, first opening up a package of band-aids, taking one out. He's then seen unwrapping the band-aid and sticking it underneath his nose on his upper lip. Then he's seen walking around the store, looking around furtively. He picks up a sandwich and he attempts to walk right out of the store. He is apprehended and the police are called. Guess who this man is? You got it, it's Robert Durst. He has shaved his head and all other facial hair, including his eyebrows, in some weird attempt to obscure his identity. Now why, you ask, would a man like Robert Durst steal a $2 sandwich? Especially since when he was found, he had over $500 in cash in his pocket. I don't know, maybe he wanted to get caught, or more likely, he was just so used to taking whatever he wanted that he had such an entitled personality that in my opinion, he just picked it up and thought he had every right to take it and that no one would catch him. So he just took it. I don't think he even thought much about it when he did it, to be honest, which begs the question, how many times has he done things like that, right? But I do believe that he thought he was above the law. The law was for other people lower people. Not anymore. Among the items discovered in his rental car at the time when he was arrested were $37,000 in cash, two guns, marijuana, Morris Black's driver's license, and directions to Gilberte Najimi's house in Connecticut. You remember Gilberte, Kathy's friend who was the last person to see her on the day she disappeared? her friend who never ever let it go and did everything she could to hold Robert responsible? Yep, that Gilbert ain't a Jimmy. That's chilling. Robert is arraigned again, this time with an unattainable amount of bail being given by the judge. It was set at $1 billion, billion dollars, even too much for Deborah Cheriton to wire to him. So he stayed where he was until the trial. This brings us up to trial number one, the first degree murder trial of Morris Black. In this trial, Robert was defended by Southern soft-spoken conservative attorney, Dick DeGarren. All of the evidence comes out in the trial, the blood evidence, the body parts, the bow saw, the connection between the two people. Bob even admits in his trial to killing Morris Black. I guess he felt like he had to. They pretty much had him dead to rights on that one. Bob even takes the witness stand in his own defense. Not sure how his attorneys felt about that. They usually try to talk their client out of that. It can be a very slippery slope for the defense. So Robert takes the stand and he explains his side of the events that led up to and include that night in Galveston. In the next part of this series, the Robert Durst Trials, we will delve into trial number one, Robert's explanation, the verdict, the remainder of the crimes tied to Robert, trial number two, and all of the craziness that happens in between. I promise you will not be disappointed. That will wrap up part two of all of the crazy crimes tied to Robert Durst. But please come back to join me for the third and last installment of this case. Believe me, 
it just gets more and more shocking. Thank you so much for listening and join me again for the next episode. Until next crime, this is what happened. True Crime Chronicles.